Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can America broker peace between Israel and the Palestinians? After two weeks of fighting between Israel and the militant Islamist group Hamas, a ceasefire has been called between the two sides. All eyes had been on the United States to bring the warring parties together. Finally, a truce was agreed, brokered by Egypt. It's a crisis that's dawned early in the Biden era and the first big test of his ability to influence events on the world stage. With calm prospectively restored to Gaza for now, the question of how President Biden can help sustain it hangs in the air. My guest this week is someone who knows the negotiating table and the risky trade-offs of dealing with the Israel-Palestinian question well. Ben Rhodes spent eight years as Barack Obama's deputy national security advisor and accompanied the president on almost all of his foreign trips, seeking a reset on chilly relations with Moscow and preparing the road to the Iran deal to limit nuclear proliferation. Since leaving the White House, he's written a book about why the post-Cold War era failed to spread the dream of more liberal democracy around the globe. He's also a fellow podcaster, talking the talk on current affairs on Pod Save the World. Ben Rhodes, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks, Anne. Good to be with you. So let's look back a a bit on where you come from in in the big debates all around us in the world. You spent eight years in the engine room of foreign policy under President Obama. You were in the administration there between uh, 2012 and 2014, and there were Israel-Gaza conflicts happening then. Comparatively, how worried do you think policymakers in the US are about this present escalation in violence? I think that they should be more worried, and many of them are. The difference here is the fact that the circumstances have just gotten worse over the last decade in terms of the broader circumstances. There seems to be no hope of a Palestinian state. The Israeli government itself has renounced its own position of pursuing a Palestinian state. So when the Gaza wars took place in 2008, 2009, 2012, there was something of a peace process. There was something of a, a sense that if you got past this, you could move back on a track towards a two-state solution. And right now, there seems to be no pathway to a two-state solution. So the desperation that infuses this situation you know, feels far more consequential in some ways. And how do you assess President Biden's response to the conflict so far? It has been called slow in some quarters, but is that a sign of a moment where a new president does need to take stock when something this serious happens in the world? Or is it slow because you think he doesn't really know which direction he wants to go in? I found it disappointing, even if I understand it. You know, I think he came into office not wanting to spend a lot of capital, diplomatic and political capital, on an issue that he felt like there wasn't 
much room to make progress on, which is understandable. He has a massive domestic agenda. He has a lot of things he wants to do in the world. But then I think what's happened since this whole sequence of events took off, so not just the the conflict in Gaza, but the evictions in East Jerusalem, there's an old set of talking points. I used them myself. They felt stale to me when I was in, when I was in government and I would say things like, Israel has a right to defend itself. Both sides need to do this. And we support a two-state solution. That felt increasingly detached from reality when I was in government. Now it feels completely detached from reality. I do think that there is room for the United States to be publicly calling for a ceasefire earlier in circumstances like this, where the civilian toll in Gaza is so horrifying, and to be a little more honest about what's happening uh, on the ground. Because it's not just an issue of Israel-Palestine. Our credibility on human rights, on, on the rule of law globally, whether we like it or not, this issue comes into play. For, for all those reasons, I, I'd like to see them break from the old talking points and, and playbook a bit here. And I think in, within the Democratic Party, uh, there's been a, a shift, particularly on the progressive wing on this issue, that is going to force them to at least be more responsive to that point of view. You can say it's stale talking points, but you do ultimately arrive at a difference of opinion, don't you? President Biden reflects the view that Israel has the right to defend itself. And there's on the left of the party, you'd say progressive, I might say the left wing of the party, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, etc., saying this is siding with an oppressive regime. So they're in a way boxing Israel into an entirely different way of, of looking at the Middle East, an entirely different worldview. Don't you need to choose? When you frame it kind of in the stark opposites, you, you lose the capacity to, to find the nuance in an incredibly complex issue. And, and here's how I'd put it. Israel has a right to defend itself as a truism. Of course, they have a right to defend itself. There are two questions, though. How do we get to this situation where things got so out of control? And is the right way for Israel to defend itself to kill children through the massive bombardment of Gaza? I think that the United States can say unequivocally that no nation should tolerate rocket attacks fired indiscriminately at their citizens. Absolutely. Policy-wise, where does that lead you? That leads you to want to be exploring how do you improve the humanitarian circumstances in Gaza? Is there a better way to get at the challenges in Gaza that involves actually addressing the fact that those people have been completely cut off for, from anybody except Hamas uh, for, for well over a decade. So the, the U.S. language, whether intentionally or not, ends up perpetuating this cycle. So I think you can, you can criticize Israel's actions while still believing it has a right to self-defense in the same way that I think, you know, you can understand Palestinian grievances and speak to them, you know, without kind of a full condemnation of the nature of the state of Israel. You could, of course, also decide that you wanted to support Mahmoud Abbas as the, the president and an authority in those areas that is not Hamas. I mean, you you could choose more clearly, couldn't you? I mean, you say, in essence, Hamas is in control and the facts on the ground somewhat support you. But there is also the invisibility of uh, the rest of, of politics and policy in the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, I think we should obviously support um, Mahmoud Abbas as the leader of the Palestinian Authority. I, I think that their their reach into Gaza has been limited. But I do think there's some basic steps that the Biden administration could take. Uh, for instance, restoring a diplomatic representation to the Palestinian Authority, resuming assistance to the Palestinian Authority. These are things that Trump obviously put on hold or, or suspended. So there's some pretty basic things that we could do to just restore some equilibrium in how we engage Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Well, let's look 
back to look forward, if, if we could, given your own involvement in this. When you were in the Obama administration, I'd like to know what you learned about dealing with the Israelis, the Palestinian Authority, and indeed Hamas, which is always as a sort of sometimes a bit of a, a ghost at the table. What did you learn as a result of talking to those players? To answer that question, you have to first acknowledge that there's a, a massive asymmetry in the power among those players. You know, Israel is a, a superpower relative to the Palestinians. And so I think that's relevant to how you think about the pursuit of peace, because acting as if everybody has equal agency, I, I think might have made more sense 25 years ago. But right now, Israel has a lot of control. Um, in terms of the security situation, in terms of just the living situation. What did I learn? I, 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 do, I do not believe that Prime Minister Netanyahu has any interest in peace. I, I, I feel as if uh, it, peace is defined by a two-state solution, put it that way. And, and peace maybe as a, a, as a kind of total security for Israel, but, but I don't think he's sincere in wanting a two-state solution. And, and frankly, he's said as much the last few years. Um, and, and what I think he did very cleverly is... You know, he would always want the veneer of some peace process that never led anywhere while not addressing issues like settlement construction that were making a two-state solution impossible. The only element you haven't put much emphasis on, which surprises me a little bit, I have to say, is when you say there is this huge difference or differential in, in power. Well, Hamas is very strongly backed by Iran, which is an extremely sophisticated power, particularly in military technology. And I would guess that the, one of the things when we dig down into it that has driven the, the events as hard as, as they have been driven, with the consequences we're seeing now, is you have a big pushback by, by Israeli security forces, what they perceive to be the great leap forward in capability on the, the side of militias. Look, I think Hamas are terrorists. I think they're arsonists. I think that they're a catastrophe for both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, I don't think they have any interest in governing anything. I think that they're just interested in tearing things down. And so I'm very sympathetic to the idea that this is a terrorist group that is not a part of any peaceful solution in the region. I think in terms of their capabilities, look, they, they have these rockets that pose a grave threat and, and nobody would want to, to live with that, that threat on their, on their border as Israel does. We, for that reason, the Obama administration financed and developed this Iron Dome system that is intercepting those rockets and that is capable of enormously mitigating the effects faced by the Israeli population. And I'm, as, as you've heard, I've been a critic of Israeli government policy. I'm proud of that policy because it's it contributed to saving the lives of Israeli citizens. I do think, though, that when you look at the situation in Gaza, the, the broader theory of the policy from Israel, supported by the United States, has been that you need essentially a blockade to choke off Gaza, that, that anything that could have a dual use, a military purpose, which they define very broadly, um, is, is, it needs to be prevented from getting in there. I, and, and that has succeeded in stopping basic goods from getting into Gaza. It clearly has not succeeded in stopping, whether it's Iran or any other supporters, from getting the material in to make these rockets. The thing that really interests me, having seen a few of these negotiations come and go since the Oslo Accords, which were the last moment of of real hope in, in all of this, is that the Biden administration wants, in a way it wants to do something better than the Obama administration was able to do, but it still has uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in power in Israel. We wrote last week in The Economist, the only solution to lasting peace is a return to direct negotiations. So putting aside, you know, we could go to and fro on whether the balance of blame and responsibility lies. Do you think that is a possibility 
in this administration? Look, I think direct negotiations are useful just because when you're talking about, when you're just talking in, in that context, it, it helps deal with other issues. So even if those direct negotiations are not leading directly to a two-state solution, having more open lines of communication and having some diplomatic framework around how Israelis and Palestinians are talking to each other and, and supportive countries like the United States are engaging, I think can help deal with circumstances like this. That said, I think we need to be very open-eyed about whether or not direct negotiations, sometimes the international community in the U.S. is the most guilty party of this. I'm, I'm being self-critical here. They get into some direct negotiations. We say, oh, see, there's a peace process. You know, it's, it's all going to take care of itself because there, there isn't the existence of a peace process. And meanwhile, the circumstances on the ground are moving in the opposite direction from the goal of that peace process, whether those circumstances involve the, the, the expansion of Israeli settlements in a way that is making a Palestinian state impossible, or whether that involves Hamas reaccumulating rockets, or whether it involves the Palestinian Authority, you know, has had issues of its own with respect to kind of corruption and, and responsiveness here. So I support the direct talks, but I do think that these are not a panacea, and that over time, you're going to have to consider other options for improving the circumstance, just the, the human circumstance sense on the ground, uh, even as you consider what to do about the long-term issues. Let's range a bit more broadly around the world. In your book, you pick up on a sense of disappointment on the part of those in the West who watched the end of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, including journalists like me, and then found out that things didn't turn out the way they'd hoped. Was it a generation over-optimistic about the West's influence? I think it was, a, in many ways, an incredibly hopeful generation. I myself kind of came of age in, in, the, in the 90s when there was that feeling that there was an inevitability to the positive change that had swept across Eastern Europe and much of the world. I went searching in writing this book and answers to the question of how did things get so messed up in terms of American politics and global politics, why this rise of increasingly right-wing, nationalist, authoritarian strains of politics. And I couldn't help but wrestle with, as an American, some choices that we did make or didn't make that I think contributed to this. And, and, and contributed is the key word here because we should never assign per total agency to ourselves. But what really stood out to me is that, you know, if 1989 and, and the, the, the change that followed was a kind of spigot of globalization opening up to kind of wash over the world, we did not think enough in terms of how the particularly kind of unregulated, unbridled strain of capitalism hitting the rest of the world was going to disrupt people's sense of, of identity and who they were, never mind curb excess. And by the time you get to the financial crisis, I think people in places like Hungary, certainly in places like Russia, were looking for something other than globalized capitalism to define who they were. And it was, it, they were ripe for appeals to identity from people like Putin and Orban. It's kind of comforting if you're centre-left Westerner to think, this kind of fits my view. I am a bit worried about this globalised capitalism. And so I think that's the real reason that things start to go wrong. But it seems to me that if you have a system which really could not sort out its competing nationalisms and you have Vladimir Putin waiting in the wings with a security state, the answer might be somewhat more obvious. Simply put, the KGB was coming back to power in Russia. Was that really all about globalised capitalism or just about power? No, I think, I think it was all about power. But the but is... I, I leaned heavily on people I spoke to because I wanted to know how did they see this kind of 30-year descent into where Russia is. The, the, the anger at seeing essentially under Yeltsin that the corruption be so in your face, the sell-off of these massive state assets that, by the way, Putin and his circle, because they were so deeply entrenched, that Putin did both things, right? He, he both 
was able to, through his cronies often, get his hands on these enormous state assets that are being sold off, while at the same time creating a politics of grievance, blaming Yeltsin and his circle for these corrupt sell-offs. So when I talk about global capitalism, I'm talking more about this very specific issue in Russia of what the 90s looked like to people, seeing this wealth transferred to a few people and the anger that created. And, and Navalny is my key character in Russia. And I could you could hear his voice. And I was just talking to him on FaceTime because I'm sanctioned and can't travel to Russia. Still the anger about the 90s, just the, the fury, you know, and, and in some ways, I think part of the reason that Navalny strikes a chord with Russians is because he speaks to some of the same politics as Putin did about the kind of resentments of the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, Navalny talked to me about being a kid and getting West German army rations as the most humiliating thing. He thought he was a citizen of the greatest country on earth, and now he's eating these West German army rations, and then he's watching these people become billionaires. That, that created the kind of rage, I think, that, that propelled his anti-corruption efforts in the same way, interestingly, that it created the kind of sense of national grievance that Putin preys upon. So that, that's how I, I, I blend our two answers there. The reset on Russia and the Obama administration, I have to say, I think it's one of the great the sort of non-entity events of any administration on Russia. Do you agree with my somewhat harsh judgment on that? Did it achieve anything? And was there a even if in fairness you say, well, this is a lot more difficult than I'm making it sound, what was it intended to achieve? Look, the, the premise of the reset was you had Dmitry Medvedev in power, everybody assuming that Putin's the power behind the throne. And it was, let's see what we can get done with this guy. I mean, it was as simple as that. It was, and I do think tangibly speaking, right? I mean, I know the list. We negotiated the New START Treaty. We negotiated to resupply our troops in Afghanistan through Russia. We, we built the Iran sanctions regime with Russian support, including the UN Security Council resolution. There were policy advances made in that reset period I think interestingly, in part because Medvedev himself may have been pushing a little bit beyond what Putin was comfortable with. And by the way, though, Putin was happy to let him do that so that when Putin came back to power, he could yank the reins back in. I do think that if you have a capacity as a government to make diplomatic progress on issues of the country, you should do it. You should take that opportunity. So I don't, I don't regret that we had pretty positive relations with Russia for a few years. I think that when you look back on it, the framing that this was a broader shift in U.S.-Russian relations is what does not age well, right? The idea that that, that, that discrete progress on a, even a set of very important policy issues, right? Nuclear arms control agreements, that's a good thing. That that wasn't changing the fundamental direction that U.S.-Russian relations were moving, which was has been a steady descent since the Yeltsin years and, and through the Putin years. To be fair to us, in a way, I do think that when Putin came back with a vengeance in 2011 and 2012, the, the reset was over. What we did is we tested what we could do with Medvedev. We did a bunch of stuff with Medvedev when he was there, but that didn't change anything in the underlying dynamic. Well, that brings me to Syria and the red line decision. Barack Obama said Bashar al-Assad would cross a line if chemical weapons were used on civilians, which they were. Obama then stepped back from that ultimatum. David Cameron in Britain was preparing to go along with some form of military intervention. So was it a mistake to promise a red line you wouldn't be able to deliver on? I could unpack that all day, including the fact that Cameron failed to get parliamentary support before we did, which I don't fault him for, because what I'm what I'm going to get at is our populations don't support these military interventions anymore. The military interventions themselves do not succeed in achieving the objectives that are drawn up 
in in these planning rooms in London and Washington. The idea that we could engineer events in Syria with a cruise missile strike, Donald Trump tried that, nothing changed in, in Syria. I think there's a bigger lesson here to take. And, and it's what I was wrestling with in my book, which is that we have debate after debate about whether this particular military intervention could make a difference. And I think the whole post 9-11 enterprise needs to be digested in a way that leads us to determine that if the goal of military intervention is to to take out a terrorist camp or to take out a, a particular capability, weapons capability, you can do that. But if the goal is to re-engineer societies in the Middle East and South Asia, we cannot do that. Even if you have good positive motivations where you want to help people look at the results in these places, we have to learn from that. I think more fundamentally though, what America lost sight of is the most important thing about America in the world is not like a particular missile strike we take, it's it's the example that we are setting. And I hear this time and again from people around the world. They do care about America. They do care what we, what we say about things. They do care about what we do in the world. But what they care about the most is that we are setting a positive democratic example. I actually started, Anne, on this question with this book because I go to Europe and people would say, well, the root of all the problems in the world right now is the red line, which led to the refugee crisis, which just felt wrong to me, and not wrong because I was being defensive, because I'm quite critical about some other things in the Obama years here, but wrong that like, well, no, this started earlier. You know, this this trend that I'm looking at didn't start in 2014. Um, never mind that I don't think that, that we could have solved Syria with some cruise missile strikes, but this started, it, it was present the whole time I was there, after the financial crisis, at least, this rise of, of nationalism and authoritarianism and, and, and Russia and China, and, and frankly, even right-wing politics in America taking a dark turn. This is a, more than a decade. And so I do think that sometimes foreign policy analysts oversimplify the politics of countries by saying, well, if only this you know, particular decision had been that, everything would have been different. I, I think it's more structural than that. The world, so to speak, particularly the democratic world, got used to America perhaps sometimes overreaching, being the tough guy. And then you either went along behind it or you decided not to do that or to do something else. I think the decision probably on the red lines and Assad, what was the the danger was that it seemed to be saying that you could act with impunity even when America under President Obama had said, we will not allow this to happen. So it was quite a, I think that was quite a decisive moment. I think you disagree with me. I'm open to that point of view. I just think that What's the counterfactual? Like if, if we launch 100 cruise missiles into Syria after that red line, I don't know that anything is different. Well, it would depend on your commi- commitment beyond the cruise missiles, wouldn't it? Well, yes. OK, what is the commitment? The commitment then is a sustained multi-year war in Syria after a sustained multi-year war in Iraq, after a sustained multi-year war in Afghanistan. Our public would not have supported that. If you really, the view is going to be, hey, there's not so much we could really do here, then perhaps don't sign up to that what appears to be a commitment and again, that red line was about chemical weapons. And people may not have liked the fact that Barack Obama didn't intervene militarily in Syria, but Syria got rid of a whole lot of chemical weapons after that red line incident. People can find all kinds of fault in that. What I do think is wrong is the degree to which everything in the world that has happened since then has been assigned to that. This idea of impunity was definitely infused with geopolitics and, and certainly the actions of people in the Middle East before the red line incident. It's not like Assad was showing restraint. And then after the red line incident, he thought, well, now I, I don't have to show restraint anymore. So I, I think that it's part of the mindset that that we can socially engineer places with cruise missiles. And and I just I, I truly think that, that that leads America sometimes to 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 look away from the more structural forces that we 
we need to be thinking about. How is technology working in the world? How is capitalism working in the world? How is democracy working at home and around the world? It must be something of a relief to come to the end of the, the, the Trump years. You describe sometimes even sort of a kind of physical, emotional, mental suffering that you felt tied up with how America was feeling in, in the Trump years. But if you come out of a stable as Pod Save the World, close relation of uh, Pod Save America, and in a sense, America feels, if it is of that mind, those parts of America that are of that mind that is being saved because Trump isn't there anymore. Do you feel some of the energy go out of it? Yeah, I do. And I worry about that because I don't think we're out of the woods. I'm glad that particularly domestically, the Biden administration is moving with a force and speed that suggests that they get that, that we have to do a lot faster to just have a chance of fending off this creeping tide of, of right-wing authoritarianism that literally came to the Capitol on January 6th. But when I look around the world, I still see the trend lines largely moving in the wrong direction with this kind of rising Chinese alternative to the organization, not just of government, but of society, uh, and this kind of Russian disruption and the kind of authoritarian trend that we see in, 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 in just about every continent. And then in America, where you see the Republican Party burrowing into states and rewriting the laws about who can vote and who can't, so that the next time <laughs> we're at the polls, uh, even if a, a large majority of Americans prefer Democrats, that they're rigging this so they can win. You have to understand that this was not Trump. This was, and this is, and why I, I, I chafe a bit at the red line point. It, this has been building for a long time. The trend lines in the world are moving in the direction of nationalist authoritarianism, largely of the right wing variety. That does not lead to good places. History tells you where that leads. The economists, that, that worldview infused me growing up, the idea that we can't go back there again because it leads to conflict, trade wars, and ultimately real wars. And, and I worry that that is still the overall direction. Joe Biden has arrested that momentum in the US. I think he's been appropriately ambitious at home, but it's gonna take much more than one American president or decision to do this. This is about kind of shifting a global trend. And, and that, that takes a lot of people in a lot of countries for a lot of years. Indeed, and the foreign policy sort of trends that we've both been, I think, even if we have on issues of slightly separate views, decrying seem to have been rather popular with a large number of people in America, and that hasn't, hasn't gone away. So does it go away, or is it always going to be a very narrow win for, for, for one side or the other? Is that what worries you, that this is not going to be as conclusive as many people hoped when they saw the election of President Biden? I, I think it was inevitable. You wouldn't solve this in President Biden's election. I think what we're really dealing with here in the US and in the UK, by the way, are fundamental questions of national identity. You know, um, Donald Trump in the Republican Party reflects a certain view of American identity that, that is white and Christian and, and kind of rooted in a belief in a past greatness. The Democratic Party is kind of the, the growing pains of a, a, a sense of American national identity that is entirely about being a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy that is increasingly extending more rights and opportunities to more people. Th those things are, those are giant tectonic plates sh clashing underneath the surface of American society. And I, I ultimately think that unless that is resolved, you know, we're going to always be balanced on this precipice between right and left. Now, the challenge, what's different today about it is the Republican Party does not any more believe in democracy. And, and if, if you think that's a hyperbolic statement, I, I just look at January 6th and everything that's happened since. They, they would gladly give it all away <laughs> for power. 
and, and, and that's why the stakes are so much higher. And again, I think that this, what this book showed me is that that's happening in a lot of places. And, and, and what we're really talking about is the survivability of democracy itself. And America is always the front line for that battle, but so is the UK and so are a lot of places around the world. It's interesting that you say it will outlast, and obviously it's very early days for President Biden, but the whole project or counter-project may well outlast a single presidency and many years behind. This is my uh, very clunky pivot, saying obviously you're not going to want to replace the president just now, but there are always rumours that Michelle Obama, who of course you know very well from your time in the White House, to whom you were personally quite close, might run for office. She polls very highly, still does, and she's denied she'll run, but then, well, they do, don't they? If Michelle Obama did decide to run, would you be tempted to go back into harness? One of the reasons why Michelle Obama is so wildly popular is precisely because she's the kind of person who would never want to run for president. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I truly tell you it's a zero point, as close to a zero percent chance as, as you could possibly get in these things. You mean she's privately ruled it out to you? Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Trust me. Uh, she, she. I mean, eight years as first lady, I think, was enough for her in the in, in the center of political life. You've got some competition, haven't you, from your real boss, from Barack Obama, who's got into the podcast game with a series for Spotify, co-hosted with Bruce Springsteen. Yes, <laughs> talk yes. about rolling out. Talk about rolling out the big guns. I mean, he's after us both, isn't he, Ben? Really. Uh, yeah, what, what do you reckon to that? Well, how, how's the competition striking you? Here I said, thought I'd carved out my own thing in the podcast world, and then he comes in like a 500-pound gorilla. But again, you know, he's he's a storyteller, and he he's just trying to find the right ways to tell different stories that, that if you listen to them, are basically about what we've been talking about. Like, what is America? And, and look, I think podcasting is, it is an area that allows you to to talk. I mean, in debate, right, as we have, I, I'm, I love the fact that we can do that here. We can have a much more interesting debate where I'm sure some people would think, well, that guy didn't know what he's talking about about that, but he made a good point over here. You can't do that on a five-minute news appearance on television. And, and so that's, I think, what is appealing to some of us who've been in politics and had to go on you know, cable television and have five-minute segments where you're unpacking Syria policy, right? You can breathe on a podcast, uh, which, is, which is refreshing. A last thought, a sort of relative values one which popped into my head. Do you have a brother who's uh, around in media circles? He's in the UK at the moment, David. He's been working uh, with News UK, which is our bit of news core in the UK. He's rumoured to be going back to a senior role in Fox, uh, Fox News, which obviously plays something of a role in something of the, of the events that we've been uh, diving into. Is this a, a polit- political difference between brothers or just two different career paths? It's a little bit of both in the sense that um, we have different politics. I, 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 my brother is, you know, he, he, I'll just speak, I won't speak for his politics now, but, you know, growing up, you know, he, he was kind of on the libertarian Republican side of things. And I was increasingly, you know, to the left side of things. Uh, when people tell me that I'm, I'm in a bubble and I don't understand you know, how people could possibly disagree with me. I, I, I remind them, my brother, he worked at Fox News for, for 12 years, from, from the launch in 1996 till 2008. And like a lot of Americans, it's in my own family, the d- differences of politics. Are- I think what people are always fascinated by when people have those strong differences, as it happens, I had parents of di- different political views, um, which is perhaps... It's perhaps less common than a lot uh, than one might think, and people always say, "Did they have rows, or was it a friendly debate?" I mean, what about was it was it a kind of table tennis, ideologically, or were there proper rows, spirited rows, uh, but but that you could not hold against each other? You know, my, my mother was a, a liberal Jew from New York, 
And my dad was a conservative Republican Methodist from Texas. Um, uh, now, both of their politics have evolved. My dad has kind of left the Republican Party. But, but when we were growing up, there were four of us at the dinner table, you were expected to argue about things. It was encouraged. And I, I actually probably assign a lot of my whatever success I have had in this world in part to the fact that, that my entire childhood, we were encouraged to have political opinions and defend them. But the other side that people don't often understand is they hear, oh, your brother went to work for Rupert Murdoch in London. You guys must fight about this all the time. No, when I call my brother, we talk about London. <laughs> we talk about how he likes living there. And, you know, I think it's, it's important to, to air your differences and have debate. But you also have to be able to see friends, family and other people for, for, for people. I want that Rhodes family dinner on a podcast. <laughs> Pod save the dinner. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Ben. Thanks so much, Anne. It's great. And we'd love to know what you think. How does your family keep things cordial when the dinner table turns into a political bonfight? And what's the casus belli where you are? Write to us, radio at economist.com. Or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. The limits of America's intervention is a topic I also spoke to former soldier and Democrat Senator Tammy Duckworth about recently. So if you haven't heard that conversation, you can listen to it and more on the pros and cons of Western military intervention wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist has looked at the split President Biden faces in his party on how to deal with Israel. And you can read that article on our website. And if you're not subscribed already, well, there's never been a better time, has there? For the best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.